Ezekiel chapter 43 and 44 up until verse 4. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I had seen by the river Kibar, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The people of Israel will never again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings at their death. When they placed their threshold next to my threshold, and their doorposts beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings, and I will live among them forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider its perfection. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. This is the law of the temple. All the surrounding area on top of the mountain will be most holy. Such is the law of the temple. These are the measurements of the altar in long cubits, that cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. Its gutter is a cubit deep and a cubit wide, with a curb of one span around the edge. And this is the height of the altar. From the gutter on the ground up to the lower ledge that goes round the altar, it is two cubits high, and the ledge is a cubit wide. From this lower ledge to the upper ledge that goes round the altar, it is four cubits high, and that ledge is also a cubit wide. Above that, the altar hearth is four cubits length, and four horns project upwards from the hearth. The altar hearth is square, twelve cubits long and twelve cubits wide. The upper ledge is also square, fourteen cubits long and fourteen cubits wide. All round the altar is a gutter of one cubit with a curb of half a cubit. The steps of the altar face east. Then he said to me, Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says. These will be the regulations for sacrificing burnt offerings and splashing blood against the altar when it is built. You are to give a young bull as a sin offering to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok, who come to minister before me, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are to take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar and on the four corners of the upper ledge all around the rim. And so purify the altar and make atonement for it. You are to take the bull for the sin offering and burn it in the designated part of the temple area outside the sanctuary. On the second day, you are to offer a male goat without defect for a sin offering, and the altar is to be purified as it was purified with the bull. When you have finished purifying it, you are to offer a young bull and a ram from the flock, both without defect. You are to offer them before the Lord, and the priests are to sprinkle them 
to sprinkle salt on them and sacrifice them as a burnt offering to the Lord. For seven days you are to provide a male goat daily for a sin offering. You are also to provide a young bull and a ram from the flock, both without defect. For seven days they are to make atonement for the altar and cleanse it. Thus they will dedicate it. At the end of these days, from the eighth day on, the priests are to present your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar. Then I will accept you, declares the Sovereign Lord. Then the man brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, the one facing east, and it was shut. The Lord said to me, this gate is to remain shut. It must not be opened. No one may enter through it. It is remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. The prince himself is the only one who may sit inside the gateway to eat in the presence of the Lord. He is to enter by way of the portico of the gateway and go out by the same way. Then the man brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. I looked and saw the glory of the Lord filling the temple of the Lord and fell face down. My guess is that this room contains about 35 billion average-sized dust particles. About 35 billion, plus or minus a billion. Uh, And that's fine. That's uh, a room this size. That's what it's meant to be. Uh, But if you're doing scientific research, if you are manufacturing semiconductors or pharmaceuticals, uh, then that's no good. Uh, You need a dust-free environment. Uh, You need a clean room. Uh, Basically, a clean room is a room with just highly uh, controlled contamination procedures. Uh, This room has 35 billion average-sized dust particles. A level one clean room uh, of the same size would have about 350 dust particles. Uh, Imagine that. Imagine breathing in that air. How, like, that you could take a breath and there would be no dust at all. It would just be pure. How good would that be? Uh, but to get a clean room takes some work. Uh, the air has to be constantly filtered. You have to wear a full body clean suit with a hood and goggles. Uh, you have to enter through an airlock. It's called an air shower. Uh, it basically sucks uh, every loose thing off you. Uh, you can't just wander in and out of a clean room. The thing with dust and contaminants is that most of them come from us. Your hair, uh, flakes of skin, dirt on your shoes. Uh, That's the catch, really. If you want a clean room, you have to be clean. And it's the same with God. If you want a holy God to live with you, then you have to be holy. That's what's happening here in Ezekiel 43. God comes back. Earlier in Ezekiel, back in chapter 8, God showed Ezekiel these visions of the temple area. And all through the temple was Israel's idolatry. Right there in the temple, they were worshipping other gods, the sun, everything except for the Lord. And the consequence was the Lord left. This is what Ezekiel sees back in chapter 10, verse 18. It says this, Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance 
of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. God gets up and he leaves. He leaves his own temple. And of course, of course, the way that Israel had prostituted themselves out to other gods, he had to leave. Not just because he was offended, but as part of his punishment on them. His judgment on the temple was that he removed his glory from it. But what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, if you've been here reading through Ezekiel with us, uh, we've seen pictures of God's mercy. uh, That God uh, makes these uh, promises to his people. Even though he's had to punish them and uh, sent them into exile in Babylon, uh, he makes these huge promises that he's going to bring them back into the land. Uh, Last week we saw uh, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones and these bones coming back to life, being revived. And he says, it's going to be like that. I'm going to lift you up and take you back to the land of Israel. But you have to ask, what's the point? What's, What's the point if God's not there? God's presence has left the temple and the temple's been destroyed. The Babylonians have wiped it out. There is nowhere for God to be. What good is it to be in the land of God's blessing if God himself, who gives the blessing, is not there? It's empty without him. I guess it's like uh, a little bit like that feeling you get if you're used to living with someone, a flatmate, uh, family, and then everyone else in the house goes away on holidays or uh, for work, and it's just you for a bit. And the first couple of days, it's like, yeah, uh, best thing ever, run of the house. Uh, but after a while, all the blessings of home feel a little empty because the person is missing. And it's a bit like that. Being back in the land will be pointless without God. And so uh, the book of Ezekiel, which we're finishing tonight, uh, finishes with one big promise that spans the last 10 chapters, really. The big promise that God is coming back to be with his people. And so that's how uh, chapter 43 starts. Have a look in verse 1. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east. And I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I had seen by the Kibar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. See, that the Lord returns. Uh, The the same uh, vision that he's seen uh, throughout Ezekiel, the the glory and power and holiness of God uh, comes back to this new temple. Uh, The last few chapters, chapters 40 through to 43, are this extended vision uh, where the Lord walks Ezekiel through this new temple that he promises will be built. And it's there in all the detail. There's uh, measurements and uh, regulations and all the cubits are there. And as you read through those uh, four chapters, you think, oh man, it feels quite tedious uh, with all the exactitude of the measurements. But for an Old Testament Israelite, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. 
It's the best thing ever because it means that God is coming back. There's going to be a new temple that's going to be built and God will come and dwell with us. Uh, So uh, we get verse 7. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. It's a wonderful promise, the measurements of this temple. Uh, But all these uh, details, these measurements aren't just building plans. Instead, uh, God is teaching Israel something. Have a look with me at verse 10. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider its perfection. See, God's coming back to live with them and the exact measurements of the temple are a sign of his holiness, his perfection, the symmetry of it, every cubit, perfectly measured out, is like a rebuke to them because they're not like that. My friend Matt is a woodwork teacher, uh, design technology, and I go to his house and everything is handmade from West Australian hardwoods, uh, chairs, tables, bed frames, and all of it is perfect, Uh, just flawless joins and a perfect finish and every cut every line is a rebuke to me (laughs) for how bad I am at manual arts and he's kind he doesn't say anything um, but I can't help thinking of the mug rack that I made in 1995 in woodwork class uh, with the hangers so wonky that if you put a mug on it would slide off and smash and um, so you couldn't hang mugs on it and it stood on uh, my mum's kitchen bench as an empty totem to my inadequacy. (laughs) And so for me, uh, Matt's house is like the temple design. It's a reminder of imperfection. Uh, But for Israel, it was worse. It wasn't just a reminder of inability. It was a reminder of sin. A reminder of their sin and God's holiness. And that just doesn't work. Sinful people can't uh, dwell with a holy God. It's like entering a clean room. You can't walk in covered with dust. The clean room shows up how dirty you are. So if God's going to come and live with his people, God's holiness demands perfection. What's needed is for sinful people to be made holy, to be forgiven and made clean again. We need to be made dust-free. They need to get the contamination of sin off them before God can come and dwell with them. And what's needed for that is a sacrifice. God's presence requires a sacrifice. That's why Ezekiel's vision here in chapter 43 focuses in on the altar. It's there starting in verse 13. Uh, All the details are there for how to construct the altar, how to use it, and it's huge. It's it's seven metres by seven metres and three metres high, uh, steps leading up to it. And the purpose of it 
is to make sinful people holy, clean. In fact, uh, they spend the first seven days offering sacrifices to cleanse the altar. Uh, And then, uh, verse 27, read with me. At the end of these days, at the end of those seven days, from the eighth day on, the priests are to present your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar. Then I will accept you, declares the Lord. See, God can't come and dwell uh, with them the way they are, with their idolatry and their sin. They need a sacrifice to make them clean. God's presence requires a sacrifice. And it's the mercy of God that here in Ezekiel 43, uh, his vision includes both. Both God's presence, God's presence returning, and the, the restoration of the sacrifices so that they can be made fit to dwell with God. God's presence and the sacrifice. Now we're a long way from that temple, a long way in time and a long way uh, in space. Uh, but God has provided exactly the same things in Jesus. He's provided the presence of God and the sacrifice we need. Jesus is both God's presence and God's sacrifice. The New Testament tells us that he's the presence of God, that he is God with us. Uh, in John, uh, John's Gospel, uh, the biography of Jesus' life, uh, in John 2, Jesus clears out the old temple, uh, gets rid of the moneylenders and the traders, and the Jews question him about it. Uh, And they say, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. The temple he had spoken of was his body. See, the Jews... Uh, are talking about the old temple. They think that that's what they're talking about, this, uh, this building, this place where God was going to dwell. But Jesus is talking about his body, the new temple, that if you want to meet with God, you go to Jesus, the person of Jesus. God made flesh. He's the presence of God. When he comes, the old temple is obsolete. A new temple has arrived. He's the presence of God and he's the sacrifice of God. His body is uh, that new temple, but it's a body that will be destroyed. Uh, Destroy this temple, he says, and I'll raise it again in three days. His body will be the sacrifice as well as the presence of God. What happens is that in his death, uh, Jesus makes that blood sacrifice to bring forgiveness, and to make us clean. Now, in the letter to the Hebrews, it, it lays out those differences between uh, the Old Testament sacrifices uh, in the temple and the sacrifice of Jesus. And in Hebrews 10.10, 10, uh, it talks about Jesus coming to do God's will. And verse 10 says, By that will, by Jesus' obedience to the Father, by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been made holy 
through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. So Ezekiel sees this uh, vision in chapter 43 of the sacrificial system uh, restarting, being restored. And it's amazing because it means that God can come and dwell with his people again. God can be made holy, or people can be made holy so that God can live with them. But Jesus' sacrifice means that people can be made perfect, once and for all, made holy. Uh, It's a little bit like entering a clean room, that you need to be made clean before you can go in. And Jesus has done exactly that in his death. And that's why uh, the New Testament is able to call Christians a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit, a place where God himself dwells. Uh, In the letter to the Corinthian church, uh, this is how uh, Paul speaks to them in uh, chapter 6. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? That Paul can talk about a Christian church and say, you are a temple, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. Uh, The problem, of course, that he's addressing is that the Corinthian church is full of sexual immorality, full of unholiness. They're not living uh, a holy life. And so Paul has to remind them that... Jesus' sacrifice means that a holy God has come and is dwelling in you by the Spirit. So what are you doing going back to all this unholy living? Don't you know that God is living with you? So it doesn't make any sense to go back to unholiness. It's like uh, being cleaned, uh, going through the air shower, uh, into the clean room, and once you're in there, then just taking out a cigarette and lighting up. Why would you do it? It's, it's crazy and it's obscene. But that's actually the application for Israel back in Ezekiel. So back to Ezekiel 43. Have a look with me at verse 9. God says, get rid of your shrines. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings and I will live among them forever. See, part of the idolatry that was going on was uh, they were worshipping these memorials for their kings. You know, like a shrine set up. It seems like there was a shrine set up right next to where they might otherwise worship God with just a wall between them. On one side, uh, the temple worshipping God, and next to that, a a shrine to dead kings with an image of the king, and incense burning, and a place to bow down before it. And the Lord says, I'm coming back. And I'm coming to take my place as king. Verse 7, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place for the soles of my feet. God will return as king, and nothing less, nothing less than king. If God is going to live among them, then Israel must get rid of their shrines to former kings. And if that's true of them in the Old Testament, uh, with God living among them in the temple, how much more true is it going to be true? How much more is it going to be true of the Christian, 
who has God himself by the Spirit dwelling within them. If you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, then the only worship that can take place within you is worship of the Lord alone. Nothing else can be more central, more ultimate, more primary in your life than worshipping the Lord. So, get rid of your shrines. Now, you might think, wait, I don't have any shrines at my place. Uh, I don't have any incense burning or anything like that. That doesn't apply to me. But isn't it true that uh, there are things in life that we worship like gods, that we do have kind of shrines too in our life, things that become ultimate to us, that we uh, give ourselves to, that become our source of meaning and significance? Don't we build shrines to things like that? I've seen shrines to coffee, uh, all the the machine and the grinder and the, the filters and all the paraphernalia set up. And, you know, I love coffee. But if coffee and the coffee station becomes this thing, this, this place that defines you, the place where you uh, get meaning, the thing that captures your time and attention, isn't that becoming like a shrine? Do you have... A shrine to your AV system, uh, the, the place where you do your gaming or watch your movies. Do you bow down to the rectangular God? Does that satisfy you? Do you get more of a thrill out of that than out of knowing God, the God who made you and loved you and calls you to worship him? Is your bathroom mirror a shrine if you can't leave the house without making an offering there of yourself, of your time, to make yourself acceptable to others in the way you look, acceptable to yourself, isn't it possible that you're finding acceptance in that and not in the Lord who gave his son for you? Or do you have an online shrine? Do you spend more time on Instagram or Facebook or uh, whatever it is, Reddit, cultivating an online identity? Do you look for the rush of approval that you get when you get maximum likes? So much so that that's more important to you than, than God's approval? The God who has laid down his life to make you his... I say we should get rid of our shrines. Those things are all good things, but don't let them become places of worship. Only God deserves our worship. And only the true and living God can give us the satisfaction and the acceptance and the approval that we really crave. And Ezekiel 43 and Uh, Jesus himself shows us that God has come and made his home with us. God has come to dwell with us. And that's only possible because of the sacrifice of Jesus. But his presence 
If God is present by his Holy Spirit, then it demands that we get rid of our shrines. Why don't you do that with me?